Welcome to the ACID Science Podcast, the official podcast of the Association for Critical and Interdisciplinary Thinking. We are a global nonprofit organization dedicated to spreading education around artificial intelligence, neuroscience, and social change. In this podcast, we are hoping to provide insightful discussions with young professionals and world-leading researchers alike. I'm your host, Manuel Prenner, and now, without any further ado, let's jump right in. We're recording, so hi, everyone. I'm here with Leonard Bereska. Thanks a lot for joining us on the ACID Science Podcast. Yeah, thank you. I'll start with a short introduction on you and your background. You studied physics at Heidelberg University and during your master's degree, already started to venture into machine learning and computer vision applications. And you, since several years, you have worked on developing AI algorithms, mostly in a neuroscientific context, but also for more general, broader applications. And you've primarily worked on reconstructing nonlinear dynamical systems and are now doing your PhD at University of Amsterdam with applications in this direction, which we will definitely talk about in much more detail. There is quite a lot of overlap between what we the both of us do professionally, and we've actually also worked together on a project last year, which just got published at ICML. So I hope we will have a lot of things to talk about also in that direction. On top, you are also a special guest since we have known each other for quite some time, and you are probably the person I had the most wide-ranging scientific discussion with in, in my entire life. So I hope we can carry some of that spirit of our conversations into this recording. So as an opening question, you are a physicist turned machine learner. Do you remember what originally sparked your interest in AI and made you transition more to this programming-based, machine learning-based research? And where do you see some similarities and useful like, background knowledge that you, that you acquired in your physics studies? Um, yeah, first of all, let me uh, thank you for, for being here. I feel very honored, especially in light of all the high-profile guests that have been on your podcast already. Um, yeah, so first interest in AI. Um, I guess it was kind of in the general, um, when the general machine learning revolution started, the, the applications of deep learning became very practical. That, that, that really, um, yeah, as for many others, sparked my interest. With with connection to physics, I sometimes found a bit frustrating the the particle physics world, and and I thought it would be nice if, or, or I thought okay, if in a couple of years a machine can do what what I do here, then why not develop that machine instead? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think you could probably say that about not only physics but yeah about many other things. So like from a meta perspective, as a Scientist, if you can develop an algorithm that becomes a meta scientist, then or becomes a scientist, then you developing that algorithm are doing much more research. Basically. Yeah, discounted. I, th I think we will see this in many fields that kind of AI will merge into any field, any scientific field, and at the same point, all of all fields converge together to AI. That's at least my feeling at this point. Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely the, the hope and maybe the promise or the, the fear. I think we can talk a lot about that at, at a later point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's also interesting. I read this article actually today because LHC is, was, was turned on again. And I also originally did particle physics. And it's quite interesting that now so much hope relies on, can we find something at higher energies at LHC? 
I think that a lot of us felt that frustration during our master's degree when we ventured into particle physics and basically thought, what's the point of doing this theoretical or experimental work if we don't observe any new physics and the Higgs boson had been predicted 60 years from now um, before. And then if you don't see supersymmetry, if you don't see new particles, then basically the whole field is stagnating. Yeah, it's, it's uh, we're kind of in a strange position there in physics that we, we lack the, the energies maybe to, to or, or maybe we got something fundamentally wrong, but it seems like we're, we're, we have a lot of different theories and very elaborate, but we don't, and we know that the standard model is incorrect, but it's still very good and we don't observe anything that yeah. violates that. Yeah. Yeah, the thing with the, these high energies is that it's, just becomes infeasible because even if you if you have somewhat linear scaling of, of energies with the size of the machine you have to build, you very quickly run into these very earthly constraints. I mean, LHC is already enormous and just gets crazy expensive, but you only get like one order of magnitude more energy, but potentially up until these scales that you can imagine particles living in is like 15 orders of magnitude so yeah that also reminds me a bit of um do you remember the first uh when when the, the lhc was first turned on there was fears about black holes uh yeah. forming and yeah. it kind of connects to the existential risk debate that we may venture venture on later in the podcast that uh, sometimes it's also questionable if we uh, if we want to actually um research certain things are you familiar with the nick bostrom uh yeah, yeah the, the black balls that you you have you have a, a box and you draw balls out of it and, and some balls are black and, and you don't know which ones in advance but if, if you draw a black ball then you destroy the whole everything <laughs> so, so that, yeah. that's that's a problem that 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 usually you you think of science as something that's universally good but uh especially in the context of ai i think we need to be a bit more careful sometimes uh, yeah maybe i mean yeah his, his claim with these black balls and the, and the gray balls i think is quite convincing now that we are also seeing the ukrainian invasion and kind of already seeing the threat of one person having the potential to blow up entire countries or even the entire world with nuclear weapons and then you have to remember that we are basically in a pretty lucky position that we can actually still maintain some control over nuclear weapons because only a limited amount of countries have it and you need to have like a huge research program to do that but if you think of a like i think the analogy he used is like if you put a handful of sand into your microwave and it, it leads to a nuclear like an explosion on the on the scale of hiroshima then we would be just completely fucked as a civilization <laughs> yeah yeah, we're just also incredibly lucky that the, the atomic bomb itself didn't turn out to be d destructive enough. And initially, there was quite a debate among before the first launch of the yeah. atomic bomb, then that that, that that could lead to a cascade of, of basically blowing up the whole atmosphere. And physicists stayed up in late in the night to to readjust their calculations. Yeah. And I mean, we basically, uh, we we are just lucky that it turns out to be fine to launch an atomic bomb like one, one single yeah. bomb is fine <laughs> yeah it could have been much worse <laughs> but anyway it's um i think it's very relevant it's, it's kind of depressing that topic but um 
it's it's highly relevant if we want to survive the next yeah. centuries maybe we can still start with your research and and more concrete research question yeah. before going into the very wide-ranging discussions so you're working on kind of this dynamical systems angle and time series analysis angle with some neuroscience applications maybe we can just start there by discussing what dynamical systems actually are and why they are interesting both for the sciences and for machine learning applications. Yeah, so first of all, my, my broad research topic is memory or long-term memory in AI. Um, but so far, I've been looking at um, dynamical systems almost exclusively uh, because I, li I like sequential data and I like um, generative models. And so dynamical systems are... Uh, Basically, it's a dynamic system is a function defined in space that yeah, defines the time evolution of, of, of a state. So if you, um, and that function stays constant. So, so at each point in time, you, you apply the same function. And then the question is, so what's the long-term behavior of uh, if you apply a function over and over again recurrently? In the sciences, dynamic systems are ubiquitous. Uh, in physics, like neuroscience, you can basically, you can see, you can treat everything as a dynamical system, I think. That's, uh, <laughs> I think that's what physicists do. Yeah. yeah um, sometimes that, that may also be a too broad lens to look at things, but uh, yeah, you can, yeah, nature itself can be treated as a dynamical system, the climate, the brain. Um, so that for the sciences, it's a very useful theory to look um, look at. Yeah, and I mean, even arguably Newtonian physics is is based on that whole conception of uh, yeah, first of all, calculus with its infinitesimal approach to time is basically based on that conception of of modeling motion in time, and that's a form of dynamics, and they're the simplest dynamics. Dynamical descriptions are also in physics, like based on the Hamiltonian, Lagrangian formulisms. And even, I mean, the Schrödinger equation in a sense is also like a time evolution of the, of the wave function. So it's also in some sense, a dynamical description of the world. So it's, yeah, I guess it's very fundamental. And most of the things we observe in real life that happen in time are in some sense based on dynamical systems. Even as, as, as you say, it's sometimes not the, the most fruitful description, maybe. Like the stock market is not best modeled as a dynamic yeah. system, probably. You, you would have to include every variable, and, and it's like super high dimensional mm -hmm. and includes us, essentially, our, our humans, inter interacting mm -hmm. with it and, and each individual brain. And, and so it can be, um, can be too, too general of a description. But um, it's it's if you, if you have a dynamical system, you're often interested in what's the limit behavior, what's the stable states of a system. If there is any, is it a chaotic system? Is it does it have limit cycles? And that can be, um, yeah, it's very very relevant. Like for example, for climate change, I'm often uh, thinking is uh, yeah. There, there's often this this notion of runoff um, runoff um, climate change so that uh, we cross a certain tipping point and, and then uh, things catastrophically change in, in, in a, into a new stable, like find a new stable regime. And um, 
yeah, the question is, is that, yeah, where's, where's the tipping points? Uh, did we already cross them maybe? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, that's a point where that perspective of dynamical systems theory comes in handy because again, our human intuitions in most regards are quite linear and like a certain linear response leads to a certain, yeah, linear outcome. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the problem. Like, like we, if we, if we linearly increase CO2 at some point, there's a non-linear linear yeah. response. Like, um, but, but also maybe, maybe also, I mean, my hope is always with climate change that there's some sort of, it's kind of a pervert, pervert <laughs> hope because, uh, that, that there's some force of nature reducing CO2 by itself, by, for example, could be by catastrophes or heat waves that, that, that naturally yeah would, would limit economic output of the human of humans mm -hmm. of us which which would be catastrophic and, and like, like disaster for us but would limit the co2 emissions and, and could be the, the only way that nature readjusts yeah. i mean the problem from an evolutionary perspective is that there's really no incentive for nature to have developed these kind of no, no, no. I don't mean yeah, it. Like, yeah, I don't mean nature, yeah. like Gaia hypothesis. Of, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, although I love that image, but uh, but I don't, I don't want to romanticize nature here. It's, it's you could. It's just. Is it like? Is the physics of of the the Earth like that, or is it not like that? that that's the question. Yeah. And, and, and maybe yeah, that that it, that it's like, maybe may like drying out, the southern hemisphere leads to human society changing in ways that uh that would recalibrate i mean we are also part of nature in that image yeah yeah that's <laughs> just wanted to say that the the thing evolution actually brought forth that can counter climate change is human beings that yeah, yeah the greatest at it but i mean referring back to the clean air task force episodes we recorded there is some hope and there's some 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 people working on it that yeah very smart people it's, it's a very well like everybody on the world almost everybody is aware of climate change so i mean there's there's a lot of hope I just um don't want to sound too gloomy here but we also actually have to do it it's it's not like it's gonna come by itself except for these maybe there's some force by itself that destroys so much of humanity that it by itself becomes better <laughs> yeah not to sound too gloomy yeah <laughs> yeah to connect that back to the dynamical systems perspective yeah that's i think that's it's quite relevant and also why um that perspective on climate models for example is so important because i think it's essentially not about yeah predicting linear responses by a simplified model which is like i think a general problem in, in the social sciences also in economics when you have simplified models that don't manage to capture the underlying interesting phenomena, which are mostly nonlinear tipping points, bifurcations. And then they, they are actually telling you what you, what you are really interested in, for example, in climate change, how much time do we actually have? And we have all, the, all of these reports and all of the science that is actually leading to policy decisions that are worth hundreds of billions of dollars. But they are based on on models which are essentially dynamical systems models of of the climate. So, get to stress that point that it's it's a pretty relevant. Yeah, it's a cornerstone corner, corner of the of the science. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, also like what what we both worked on mostly is like uh, in the context of mental health. You treat the brain as a dynamical system, yeah. and there it's interesting to see what what was what's for example the bifurcations between. Yeah, what we consider a healthy individual and, and yeah, 
mental disease. Um, so uh, that may be also different dynamical regimes of, of, of the brain. Yeah. And then maybe you can find from from brain recordings as put in in the paper this you can find uh uh yeah these like fixed points for example and analyze their stability or something and yeah. connect that connect that to uh certain mental conditions. And there's the underlying hypothesis that most mental functions are in some way also implemented in terms of dynamics because we we don't have like a Turing machine in our brain, but we have a dynamical brain, which is yeah firing away very merrily most of the time. Yeah, so for example, memory could be like attractor states there, like and, um, like this. There's this Hopfield network as a, as a system proposed in neuroscience, where you can store memories as um, as attractor states, and when you have um, certain input that that resembles the, the the memory then there's an auto associative recall of that memory yeah maybe now that we talk about hopfield networks can we go into that a little in a bit more detail because i think it illustrates like, now that you're also working on memory some of the basic principles quite nicely yeah so so hopfield networks is um so originally is like a discrete um binary networks so there's like the network state is again each each dimension of the Network can be either one or minus one, and um, you want to store patterns, which are then abstract, uh, yeah, vectors of, of ones and minus ones, and uh, you store them. Uh, yeah, the, the, maybe the mathematical details I, I can yeah, yeah. spare, but uh, it, you can construct from the from the memories itself. You can construct the uh, the network, and um, by um, showing uh, an arbitrary uh, the network like, like that uh, partial um, noise corrupted uh, memory then uh, it's it's able to as a dynamical system uh, for as a matter of fact uh, over multiple up iterations um, on mostly also maybe it was only one but can be also many iterations uh, converge to that attractor state and um, retrieve the memory that's been stored just putting that into analogy with our brain when we we i think there's this basic assumption that our memories are also high dimensional or multi-dimensional composed out of multiple sensory inputs so if we remember like our our living room at home we remember smells and we remember sights and sounds and if we observe something or maybe even more trivially or like a, we, if we see a face that looks similar to the face of a, of a person that we know, then that memory gets activated, which is also stored kind of dynamically some, somewhere in the activations in our brain. And then we can, like, it, it really yeah, brings a certain person into focus and then we can think about that person as well. Yeah, it's, I find that quite interesting mm -hmm. if you, I mean, it often occurs that you want to remember a name of a person and you, you forgot how, how that person is called. And, uh, then for me, it always helps to just think of like more situations where I would have encountered that person and, and make make the the input the, the, that that leads to this auto associative or hetero associative recall in that that um, case. And, and then yeah, if if you think more about it, then at some point it comes back out of nowhere. You don't you, you don't really do anything, but but it just pops in and yeah, so, somehow the 
in that image somehow the state has converged to this attractor that you you've been searching for and my favorite image from from world literature is the, the beginning of marcel post's recherche where he's eating that madeleine as a as a grown man and that brings him back to the memory of of his grandma's place in his childhood and that basically starts off the entire seven book marathon of of that <laughs> of that work and yeah, it's, it's perfectly yeah, encapsulates that associative memory, which I think for human beings is especially pronounced with um, smells or like with the olfactory system, because that somehow kind of gets sensory information right into parts of our brain where we have like long-term memory, for example, and can activate certain areas that we that are hard to access otherwise. Yeah, I mean, smells are so distinct; they're, they're like extremely high-dimensional and very distinct. Uh... Mm. And yeah, connected. That, that's true. That can be very deeply connected to memory that you don't even know mm. that you have. Like you, you can't even recall that memory otherwise if you, if you don't have the, the smell. Um, yeah, that could be. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's so interesting how the the brain organizes basically how searchable it is. In a computer, we have an address for everything, and then usually, I mean, you can still lose stuff on your computer by having a inefficient, stupid file. <laughs> file names or something but in principle everything is stored in the in one concrete location you can always look it up yeah although in a, in a sense i mean that makes it more robust uh, but it's um yeah the brain is more distributed uh, that, that, and also that, that that's why it fades like how memory how you forget things is also not by not in the same way as a computer would do it to just delete the file and then it's gone and i mean okay maybe there's like some copy of it in the cage and, and so on and you can re retrieve it somehow but i mean these are technicalities uh, but but yeah but in, in principle if you delete it it's gone completely and in the brain it's way more gradual like you, you can forget things and then by some like very intense uh stimulus you can you can remember it even or, or maybe if, if, you, if you learn a language and then forget it then if you learn it the second time it's much easier to learn much much faster and this i mean the, the other interesting thing about memory in the human brain is that uh, it's basically has the prioritization of how important a memory is inbuilt from the get-go and you have these ebbinghaus forgetting curves mm. that from the 19th century which i think were determined now to to be actually kind of the the information theoretic optimum for like prioritizing the information contained in it so so forgetting is in itself optimal it's not like oh we are so stupid human beings uh, how, how, how in which sense optimal uh, and... uh in the sense of kind of yeah filtering out like which information you actually need because and under the assumption of from, like from, a bounded capacity or something and uh, yeah like how how searchable the spaces i mean it also connects to to the other question of if you have a computer and if you don't know where information is it has to be searchable in a certain way and then you have certain mathematical bounds on mm. like how fast a bubble sort can or maybe yeah maybe it's connected to the this least re recently used uh yeah, algorithm, yeah. right like, like that, that i mean that you also have is in computer science it's the optimal way if you don't know anything else uh the optimal way to uh to search for something is to, to just use the thing that, that you used the, the, the last yeah. the last time so then these ebbinghaus forgetting curves would, would 
basically ma make that happen, right? That, that you still remember yeah. something if it just recently encountered and forget it otherwise. Yeah. And I mean, from that, you get the, like the spaced repetition principle of repeating it after a couple of hours the next day, next week. And then. Yeah, I mean, the human, humans have um, several mechanisms of memory, right? Like you can also remember something that you just encounter once. Uh, and not, not, I mean, repetition always works. You, you can always remember something by repeating it a lot of times. Uh, and that, that makes sense yeah. also and connects it to machine learning where you have like these, these updates and uh, gradient updates and just have to have a lot of repetition to, to store it. But, uh, humans can also learn by just if something is really stressful. Like if you, if you have a really stressful experience, uh, you will not forget that. Uh, I mean, sometimes it's also like connecting to mental health that that can be very detrimental for certain people if you have a traumatic experience and can, cannot properly process that. And memory is also stored on, on several layers in the brain. Even with PTSD, for example, you have this embodiment aspect of it that it's really, there's this great book, The, the Body yeah. Keeps the Score, that talks about PTSD and also, you like in terms of anxiety and panic attacks, you you have basically the cortical pathway, which is has access to your abstract representations of these memories that you can usually access pretty easily. But the amygdala, amygdala itself keeps memory of the emotional association of that traumatic event, and then you can get panic attacks by smelling a certain smell that you smelled in a traumatic experience, which you can't even remember is connected to that, but you just get anxious instantly. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's connected because of stress. There's also like research on like when you, for example, when is the optimal time to drink the coffee uh, if you want to learn something? Then uh, like Huberman talked about this in, in his podcast. Yeah. You actually have to drink it after, the, like shortly after you, you learn something because that increases cortisol and like, stress. I mean, coffee makes you stressed essentially, yeah. um, among other things. Uh, and then you remember it better. Yeah, but that ties in nicely with this, like this idea that the body. Yeah, we don't remember anything just for fun. No. <laughs> it's fun to remember enough. Everything is follows some kind of prioritization, hierarchization of do we need this information? Then we modulate it by attention and by neurotransmitters that also get activated in, on larger time scales when it comes to yeah, focusing on certain life situations on some kind of information. Acetylcholine as well, when you have these like strong traumatic experiences. And that basically consolidates all the impressions you have in the couple of hours around that event. Yeah, I mean, and also like that's why memory is not really a faithful account of the past. It's, it's always useful for the future, and maybe even like false. Is, can, you can wrongly remember something, and yeah, in, in case of humans, memories not worth anything by itself evolutionarily speaking it's only to act better in the past yeah that's in the hippocampus it's also this this cool perspective that future is basically like the past but like flipped around as so projecting the past into the future yeah there's this yeah the sequences and there's replay sequences and reverse replay and as future projection yeah, yeah. If like if in red experiments, you could actually see that pretty distinctly in the hippocampus that that you have these yeah sequences that get just 
turned around in in order when you when they are thinking about the the future yeah in in a sense you can like planning you can view as, as just remembering the future kind of yeah <laughs> yeah and that i mean that illustrates that it's such a dynamical endeavor and that so many yeah that basically not not a fixed past that you can just access but every recall in a way again talking about this um, repetition aspect every recall you have on the prefrontal cortex basically updates your your memories to the to the current state of the world and trying to integrate it into our world model then we have something like yeah, cognitive dissonance if you have a memory that does really suit your current world model then either you recall it and adjust it to your vision of the world or you just ignore it <laughs> so there are many tricky things that we don't really face in ai yeah yeah many of these biases uh, are kind of very human Let's hope, let's hope we can overcome them in, in AI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or maybe we don't build them in from the get-go. Maybe that's an interesting question to, to think about. Yeah, I mean, biases in, in AI, that, that's a huge topic. And I mean, the, 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 all the biases come from, in AI, come from the data, I would say. Like, the, if the data is already, like, biased in some way, then you have this, that's the problem with data, only data, learning from data, that you can... If you employ those systems then to predict the future, then maybe it's just uh, like predicting based on some stereotypes of the past and and propagating stereotypes. Yeah, but that's like biases in a in a more limited sense because it, yeah. it can actually the, the the algorithm itself doesn't really give anything to it that additionally biases it. I would say so. It, it just basically captures the the underlying structure of the data it is given yeah yeah it's it's, it's kind of i mean it's if you treat the data as um the reality then it's it's just a statistical reality of, of how, how the world is but i mean yeah. if you, of course then you have to be really careful about your data if you make that assumption yeah, yeah. yeah but in a way some of human cognitive biases are also they kind of skewed representations of, of the statistics of the world because they are kind of over-interfering. We can also connect that to this, to the point you mentioned earlier about machine learning mostly relying on repetition and not being able to do this one-shot learning, or like doing learning on, on few examples. Uh, what do you mean? Uh... Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> so machine learning, you learn on, you usually need a lot of data to basically capture the underlying statistical distribution and human beings can infer models or realities from one example. We have one-shot learning or a couple of examples, but that induces, in principle, more biases because you don't have a proper representation of the diversity of, of reality, for example. If you see one dog and say, ah, that's, that's a dog, and then you, you won't realize there's like hundreds of different brands of dogs <laughs> out there. Mm-hmm. Do you see my point? Not really, to be honest. Uh, is it like it's not connected to the left-right hemispherical no, no, divide no, no, or anything? No, no. Okay, no. No, it's 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 mostly like a statistical claim that I think biases come from like incomplete perceptions of of a given reality. Yeah. And human brains are more prone to biases because they over-infer on on small amounts of data i mean this is also a strength of the human brain. yeah they, they are, yeah they also have to do this it's kind of also like connected to to bayesian 
inference, right? We have the, the, you can say biases that, that are basically our priors and a basic prior for humans is everything foreign is, is bad and like yeah. everything that's different from me is, is, is bad. Could be like any characteristic, like uh, and um, you can even divide like human humans into red and blue uh, teams yeah. randomly, and then you you would be more hostile to the other team. And I mean, this is like a very very basic like um, yeah, tribal tendency that we have, and that, yeah. that has has to have been useful in the past, but now we have a lot of problems with it. There was this in the chariot racing in, in Constantinople back in the day. You also had this blue and the green faction and they were all from the same city and it was just basically two colors completely made up and not related to anything and then they also had these there was this huge fight between both factions where thousands of people died so it's... yeah and i mean the mod is kind of the ancient day hooligan <laughs> yeah, yeah. phenomenon yeah. i mean nowadays yeah. we have to well i mean f football teams are also completely yeah, arbitrary and uh... i mean at least it's <laughs> you can make the claim that it's connected to the city or from or something and some kind of local traditions but because yeah i just find it even more hilarious or like yeah or, or horrifying depends what you say if it's just two colors and they are completely arbitrary they don't have anything to do and it's just dudes racing on chariots then people start fighting yeah well i i'm i'm not concerned that so this type of problems we won't have with ai i think uh, unless we build it in mm -hmm. specifically um, yeah, but we we will have other types of problems where the human, where we would actually want human priors or human constructs or, for example, moral values or something that we perceive as so, totally natural. Um, yeah, that are missing in in AI by default. Yeah, in, in that sense, AI is can be like if it's just goal maximizing, then it's kind of like a has psychopathic tendencies that it doesn't if it's not constrained by anything else yeah but it's an interesting question like how which of the priors of the human priors you want to build in because it seems like that's one of the central next steps in, in building machine learning or effective ai models is to have more priors inbuilt to capture certain structures of reality or like kind of have the ability of the algorithm to already react efficiently to for example, physics, the physics of the world or learning efficiently, more efficiently from data without seeing millions of samples. But probably we invite a lot of unwanted things into, into our algorithms if we formulate too strong prior. Yeah, yeah, well, um, yeah it depends on the situation. I think it's, it's very hard to make general statements there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, but I mean... Yeah. Uh, like from the, this, I mean, if we want to touch on AI safety, uh, from a safety perspective, uh, you would want, yeah, some sort of uh, control. Like that, 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 if the, if, if, at least for me, it seems very um, hard to, to constrain an AI in this goal framework that we currently have. Like we, we have machine learning always functions, but right now most functions with objective functions that you just optimize and then to find the right objective function i, I think it's really hard uh, if you if you if you make it really intelligent i mean for example 
in a sense you can you can for example see um companies as ai like, like corporations because uh a corporation is usually more than one person and then in that, that sense it's more intelligent than than one person uh because it's a team of persons and then also different yeah structures and resources that they have and, and they optimize for profit uh and that already brings us a lot of problems if, if it's not constrained by law in, uh, in a meaningful sense. And uh, yeah, if you just increase intelligence there, which I think is the most likely path we, we get problems with AI, even with narrow AI right now, that powerful corporations are optimizing uh, narrow objective functions uh, with highly intelligent algorithms. and. and and that having side effects that that can't be foreseen because we are not as smart as, as the things with which we optimize <laughs> yeah. right so yeah. that's kind of the, the the interesting point i mean the you can argue of how intelligent these algorithms are but they are extremely effective in in this narrow sense i mean that's it's, it's been a long long-standing story in ai that as as soon as we find like a narrow application of ai then the algorithm tends to just get much better than human beings instantly or with like a couple of months. Mm -hmm. like and then we shift, we shift our notion of intelligence and, and say, okay, that's <laughs> yeah. chess playing. That's not really intelligent. That's just mm -hmm. pushing around pieces on a board. And yeah, what, yeah. We, what we mean is actually more something like, like go, go for example, <laughs> Yeah, which is now. And looking, looking at a Facebook profile and knowing perfectly how to target them to vote for certain parties. That's also, that's just dumb. It's, everyone could do that. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that concern also is, um, it's kind of irrelevant if we call that intelligence mm -hmm. or not, if it's destructive for the world, then we need to do something about it. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I w was being sarcastic. I don't know if that came, no, no, came, it came, across, came, came, came across. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it's like if you if you think about what these algorithms do, then they don't only infer that from the Facebook profile, but they use millions of examples. Again, talking about that whole memory thing, the algorithm also stores information of, of millions of use cases very effectively in the network architecture of these classifiers, for example. And then that's very close to many things we do as human beings that are pretty impressive from an intelligence perspective. Like even like selecting applicants for a job, for example, that's precisely the same job that the Facebook algorithm does if it's optimizing like which people to show what kind of information. So yeah, although the Facebook algorithm is probably better at that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you read thinking fast and slow, the, the hiring algorithms aren't very effective as well. Yeah. Oh, this yeah, this interesting perspective that the human heuristics we have are tend to be pretty, pretty bad. And as soon as we replace them with mathematical formulas, even like a simple linear predictor model of of certain properties of an applicant, in the uh, Kahneman and Tversky talk about this. Yeah, for for officers in the Israeli army, like selecting them and predicting how successful they are actually going to be. Basically, the human expert predictions were worse than like the linear model based on the objective facts, and probably even worse than a random model or something. Yeah, I think that though, yeah, that, that that's a really um, 
useful avenue for, for research for, for making AI interpretable to, to actually make it simpler. Like, like right now we have these deep models and, and, and in a sense, I mean, maybe they're better than, than humans, but maybe they're also not. Like for a specific application, they can also fall into that expert uh, trap, I would say. That, that, for example, for Amazon had, had this project, I think, for, for selecting applicants and uh, based on CVs, past CVs. And then they, they suddenly found that the, the AI was vastly um, predictable predicting better results for male applicants. And that's just been the case mm -hmm. because of, um, yeah, I mean, in the past that, 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 that has been the case. So basically what, what the what the algorithm did was to, to infer from the past. I mean, it did exactly what, it, what we wanted to, to do, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, just based on the data, which is the representation of the past, didn't apply anything in the future. And, and if you had, had a simpler model, which where you could see each variable uh, influencing the, the decision, then you could, uh, yeah, make make that much more apparent from the beginning. I think that's where like, some statistical notions come in so handy in AI, because you you always should start with a linear regression, for example, and use like the the simplest version as as a baseline to see if all the fancy architecture you built on top is actually worth something. Maybe that's also where, yeah, the of scientific spirit or scientific approach to, to, to research clashes a bit with the more engineering-based approaches and for many um, machine learning AI developers, which are actually sitting at applications and they need to get working algorithms and they try things out, but it's not really about the transparency of the algorithm or keeping it as simple as possible. Yeah. And you could maybe even argue about this, this tendency of human beings to it it always comes across as more impressive if you come up with like a sophisticated solution with many nice tweaks and turns. And if you just say, ah, this thing that then you cite a paper from 1972, ah, they already did that and that works perfectly. Mm, yeah. And then people are starting to wonder why they hired you. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, but I mean, for practical applications, that's that's going to be a problem for, for AI if we can't, can't really understand yeah. what it does. But the nice book recommendation on that is uh, the alignment problem. It's um, yeah, also talking about, for example, this medical example that uh, I think it was uh, some it was some lung disease. Was um, it COVID lungs or something? And no, it was something. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. some some lung disease. I forgot what what it was. And and then um, basically uh, they had asthma patients and and. Asthma was predicted to to have a positive impact on on this disease, and the reason for that, I mean, they, they stopped the program immediately. The reason for that was um, so doctors knew that that couldn't be like uh, asthma is terrible, mm -hmm. and and the reason why it has a better outcome is actually because of if the doctors see that someone has asthma, he gets specialized treatment, and then actually his outcome may be slightly better. Because he get, because of of the danger of the disease, he, he gets such a special treatment. But if you just follow the recommendations by the AI, just blindly trained on the data, then we would predict that asthma. We don't need to do anything about it. It's, yeah, um, it's great if you have <laughs> asthma and some lung disease. <laughs> yeah, perfect combination. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you um, did you hear about the lambda model, the uh, Google's 
recent language model. I mean, they have so yeah. many language, large language oh, models right. these days. But the, the Lambda was a controversy about uh, AI and the sentience. So that one, one engineer, Google engineer, who, who got laid off immediately afterwards, uh, claimed that this language model has become sentient or conscious and uh, that it's, uh, it needs to be taken care of. And it's, it's, uh, it's yeah, kind, of, kind of pointed to the moral, moral implications of, of having a model and then treating it badly if, if, yeah. it, if it has some notion of, uh, yeah, of will. And I mean, the, the, the dialogue is kind of impressive if you read it. It's, it's, I don't know um, what, what to think of it. I, I think it's still just pr producing text that's very I mean, coherent. Yeah, that's and, and like the, the weird thing about the, the Turing test is that it's not a good test in, in many ways for intelligence or for definitely not for sentience because you can even fake pretty decent versions of the Turing test with lookup tables and old fashioned AI, and there's really no reason to assume that there's a, kind of the meat and bone or like the world model that is needed to integrate these texts into like a coherent framework of of having a view of the world and having emotions. Nothing of that sort needs to be there for models to produce like proper text already. So there's this big gap between what the Turing test tests for and is the, the Turing test's ability to to predict kind of sentience. But the issue is that it's like in, in practical terms, it's probably the most convincing to us and will play a big role in kind of robot-human interactions because as soon as robots start to speak our language, you can see that with Alexa and Siri, we already start building up some kind of emotional feedback mechanisms and, and reactions to that. And the more sophisticated that language gets, the more convinced we are, even though we, the, the model is still lacking huge amounts of other necessary ingredients. Yeah, I mean, although we never really know that, mm. but like there's this Chinese room yeah. argument so that uh, the, the, someone who can speak Chinese just looks up things and and convinces, like basically looks up in a dictionary and makes someone from the outside of the room think that this room knows Chinese. Yeah. Um, or the, the, the person in the room knows Chinese. Um, what I find a bit weird about this argument is that in the end, I mean, the room knows Chinese, right? It's it's not the, the person inside, yeah. but the room and as a system as a whole knows Chinese. It's it's I mean, it's an argument against consciousness in, in artificial machines that so that the machine can seem conscious, although it's not. Yeah, I think the claim is more that I would claim more that can implement knowing Chinese in different ways. And the human way is integrated in this effective framework also. <laughs> relating to Mark Solms and his idea of kind of affect being at the center of consciousness and can know Chinese effectively by having a body that reacts to words in certain ways and knows a Chinese world. Or you can have a lookup table, which you already have on the internet, which basically knows Chinese. And or you have DeepL, which can translate text pretty convincingly, but doesn't have a body. So that, that's what I mean. You can no language on, on different layers of, of the hierarchy and <clears throat> one of them leads to a sentience, but the text itself doesn't. Yeah, although, I mean, like if we divorce like sentience from, from consciousness in this instance, we, we can't really claim that, okay, this maybe sound 
sounds a bit crazy, but we can't really claim that the room is not conscious in a Chinese room. Yeah. Uh, or or that, that the lookup table is not conscious. It's like consciousness itself is just, yeah, I don't know if you should even start that discussion because it's, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's just, um, yeah, you can't claim much about consciousness. Uh, it's, you can, you cannot even know if I'm conscious. I mean, I, I seem to be maybe, but, uh, if I'm conscious or not, only I know. With this. But again, yeah. Although the only, the only thing like, I wanted to ask you about this zombie argument, uh, like one thing I don't really understand about this is, um, if you assume like I'm a zombie, then me talking about consciousness and like being interested in it and, and seeming to know what it is, isn't that some kind of proof that I'm conscious? I mean, it's a proof of the meme of, of consciousness being <laughs> caught up in our language and a scientific discussion. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, but why why would we come up with this meme in the first place if it's um so <laughs> I have a bit of a I mean of course if you I mean of course if you ask these language yeah. models are you conscious then they will answer yes and, and that doesn't mean anything necessarily. But I, mean, um, I have a bit of a hypothesis um, um Chalmers talks about this meta problem of consciousness. So why are we actually so obsessed with this idea of, of there being consciousness in the first place? And I think it relates to uh, like consciousness from that yeah more underlying perspective of it makes us like the divine spark or whatever you want to call it also tied up in in our christian conception of the world and also connected to free will which is also like, specifically connected to our metaphysical view of the world and the western world which is very different from many other tribal conceptions or in other cultures conceptions of of free will because our moral institutions basically rest on that um yeah, and, the, and the notion of free will this notion of free will which is also connected to the notion of a monotheistic god which can basically see all of our actions but gave us free will in order for us to decide for good or evil which is a very christian metaphysical conception of of that and in that framework free will becomes such a central moral instance because it's basically the divine task for us to to live a good life and then that, that's connected to our interest in, in consciousness yeah, definitely in kind of this agency <clears throat> perspective and this idea that consciousness is this we are aware of what we do and maybe also like a metacognition aspect to it <clears throat> but this is yeah interesting yeah i would argue that the most sophisticated notion of Consciousness is found in not in Christianity but in yeah. Buddhism. Yeah. Uh, but um, and also this whole notion of free will is actually more annoying to and, and more uh, confusing, I think. And and I think it's an illusion uh, in, and connects to the illusion of yeah. self and uh, that that kind of confuses our thinking of what consciousness is yeah. because in 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 us it's very closely related to the self like like we, we think like we are an agent we, we have we make choices and um and that's what consciousness means for us but then if you take like a drug that reliably releases this this notion of self then you can you can also, yeah, you can divorce that, yeah. the, the conscious, conscious experience from the experience of, of self. And you can reliably experience you not having free will. But that's why it's so interesting that 
see, we, we have that clash between free will and like, scientific deterministic notions of the world, but we keep holding on to that, or most people keep holding on to that. And me, myself, when I think about my actions, also in some way hold on to that notion of there being some kind of free will because it's so tied up with our moral perception of the world and our justice system and all of yeah, that. I mean yeah, yeah, and in society, but also in, in evolutionary speaking, like with this notion of self, and like probably also in inter, um, just in the interrelational sense that you need to explain yourself to, to others, otherwise you you're you're weird and, and unexplainable and, and dangerous. So so you need to have like a concept of self and to shift blame, deflect blame from yourself. That, that's very useful. Yeah. And, and if you live together in groups. Yeah, I think that's another very fascinating, weird question for in terms of like how we build AI systems that could potentially be sentient because this, we are evolutionarily forced to have a coherent self model, or at least trying to make it as coherent as possible because we are this embodied agent, which have one face and walk around in the world <laughs> and of having to project that coherent worldview. But if you just have an algorithm that's running, I don't know if it, if it necessarily comes up with this kind of binding structure of, I am that one sentient thing. Yeah, maybe not. I mean, if you have it in a reinforcement learning setting, then maybe that notion emerges on itself. Like if you, if you have an agent running in a maze, then the position will be very relevant. So, so this concept of self maybe comes through sensory experience. But I mean, if, if you have an algorithm optimizing, uh, yeah, user recommendations for Facebook, then that, that, that may be completely useless and be just not, not in, in the algorithm. It's, so, so the algorithm wouldn't have the concept of self. Yeah, it's, it's weird to think about that, how, how that would feel. I mean, do, do you think the current algorithms are conscious? <laughs> Yeah, that de <laughs> really depends on your perception, <laughs> or like definition of consciousness. I mean, we should maybe we should also yeah we should first define what we mean by consciousness. I mean, I, I would go with this notion of like what what does it feel like uh, to yeah. to be something, yeah. some process. Um, like how how does it feel like to be a bad like Thomas Nagel uh, definition? I think that's the most useful one. And it's not not connected to. Um, yeah, self and awareness and other things. Yeah, I think I mean, after having Mark Solms on and, and reading his book and, and thinking about effect, that perspective has shifted a little bit for me and I still am somewhat yeah, convinced <laughs> by his arguments that there are like more deeply rooted mechanisms at work than simple, simply the cortical kind of metacognitive aspects of of, of thinking about ourselves and thinking about thinking and these kind of things, but it's more this visceral kind of feeling of how am I in the world and how is my homeostasis holding up and what are kind of the, these essential components of how my body is doing in the world. Yeah. I, I think so for me personally, as a, coming from physics, the only perspective that kind of makes sense uh, to me is uh, this pen. I mean, sounds kind of, crazy but this panpsychism it's, it's a really bad name i think uh, it's, it's, it sounds sounds like somewhat metaphysical although it's exactly exactly the opposite it's basically the most physical view that that everything every physical process has some subjective nature to it 
And I think that the, the niceness of that that view is that you um, you don't need to. There's no boundary. I mean, the, the, the boundary can be super gradual. Like um, otherwise, you always think like, okay, what? So humans may be conscious, and then apes also, and other animals. But then, what, what about an ant? And what about a what a simple reinforcement? What about a simple reinforcement learning agent in a maze or something? And, and then what, what about some stupid algorithm that's even even worse than that um, or even simpler than that? So, um, yeah, but I think the relevant aspect of consciousness for, for moral, uh, for morals um, is suffering, right? So, so that, that I think comes in with homeostasis, maybe. And that, that yeah. would be very early, right? Like that would be bacteria level. Where 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 our, our morals would extend to bacteria in that sense. I think that that's a very important distinction is that not all consciousness necessarily has the ability to suffer. And again, yeah, that's what I also wanted to to connect that to earlier. That's why consciousness is so crucial because we see in others like the ability to suffer and in ourselves the ability to suffer. And that's why it's so tied up to these moral notions of the I mean, world. it of course depends on what's your moral framework, what's important. But I mean, I mean, suffering is kind of for among the moral frameworks that you can construct. It's 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 mm. uh, it's it's in this Bayesian way of thinking about like a if you integrate over all these moral frameworks that you can possibly have, and, and which ones are more likely to be true, kind of than. Suffering is very important, I think. <laughs> yeah, in Buddhism, it's at the core of everything. Yeah. So you want to avoid suffering. Uh, we, I mean, it's very easy for for us to say, like, I, I want to avoid suffering, right? And then you can assume that from for someone else, and that's already where where ethics starts. You, you extend, you extend, you extend yeah. your own, uh, yeah, how you want to be treated yourself. You want to, every creature thing to be treated yeah i had jasper Götting from ea circles on the podcast before and we also talked about this kind of contentious topic of animal suffering and wildlife suffering ah. <laughs> which is it's like the basically that notion of we think they're suffering in, in, in nature and do we have a moral responsibility to take care of that or to yeah, that's a, that's a very. I mean, it's a kind of a constructed <laughs> example. We we take care of that already by extinguishing wildlife. So it's it's our moral duty. That's why we need to do it. Thank thank the oil companies. But I mean, what we replace it with is like animals uh, bound up into these um, meat factories. Uh, so, so it's not. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's moral reasons why we do it. Um, safe to say. Yeah. <laughs> Sure, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Uh, what do you think about it? I, I would say it, uh, under this moral framework construct, or under moral framework constructed from suffering, that's lo the logical conclusion. But uh, it's it's counterintuitive, of course. Of, uh, yeah, and it leads kind of. I think this it it really connects to this basic notion of how optimistic we should be about life and reality and the universe. And if kind of the, the natural state that, that came out of evolution was one of suffering for most living things that came about on Earth, kind of induces this more pessimistic notion. I think you, you already have traces of that. You have Yanaism, and I think that's what it's called mm, in, mm. in ancient India, where people basically 
tried not to step on an aunt even, or, yeah. yeah step on anything and just try to lie in a corner until they died because life was so just a vehicle for suffering and that's why you couldn't live anymore so i think just projecting that metaphysical notion onto onto life and then thinking yeah all animals it would be better if nothing existed i think that kind of well, that's a different, that. different. That's a different claim, right? Like you, you say, like existence is better, is worse than non-existence. I mean, may, maybe that life is full of suffering, but it's still worth mm -hmm. it for some other reason. Yeah. I mean, of, of yeah. course, not if you only have the dimension of suffering, then non-existence. I, I mean, I wouldn't even know what where non-existence is. Is it zero? Is it? Like, it's not really yeah. defined, right? It's uh, it's yeah. kind of like a high-dimensional space. Uh, each individual being one dimension, and then each dimension can be either suffering and uh, less suffering and then if non-existence is like the space doesn't exist at all so there's no metric you can define to value spaces yeah. but yeah it's it's so difficult to dis define like the positive direction in in animal wildlife suffering it's hard for us to to estimate how important is like the joy of a deer running around in the forest that it's very hard to make these judgments so i think at that point I can understand the, the point better that human beings should just yeah maybe start taking care of themselves and kind of leave nature as it is. But it's again if you if you want to be yeah the problem is if you I mean if you take any moral system and, and optimize it and it's kind of similar to like if you take any objective and optimize with an AI the the what comes out of it is is very very clear cut answers. Like if you if you say like more humans are better than less humans, right? Like there's more experience, more pleasure, and if you say like existence is better than non-existence, then like each each additional human would be better. Then you would the conclusion would be if if you value like life as such and nature, and then say okay that there's it's better to have more humans here and then just cut down the rainforest, make some artificial carbon capture to to stabilize the climate and, and then somehow farm field it to, if that was possible, even for sustainable, I don't think it is, but anyway, let's assume it is. And then that would be better to, to have, have more humans living on earth. But I, I think it's important, yeah. like with all this, what, what's, what's kind of also again, connecting to this AI safety that there's this strand of introducing uh, uncertainty into uh, the AI's objective that you don't really know your objective for sure and then you can kind of come out of it so in this in this moral uh framework it would be that you don't really know if you have the right morals uh and uh so you have to kind of make a bayesian integrate uh, integrate overall uh possible morals and then yeah be make your actions uh more conservative and, and so, so you, you can't go too extreme then because that that would violate maybe if, you, if under one moral framework that would be the best but under others it wouldn't be and then you have to be more careful so you have an ensemble of our moral positions active and you randomly select yeah <laughs> like for every decision you take in your life you you do like a weighted sum of our actions of yeah our i think that, that's a that's a huge by oh not maybe not bias, but it's a huge uh, prior towards uh, towards more conservative actions. Uh, 
like, like leave everything as it yeah. is more. Uh, yeah. <laughs> First, do no harm, kind of like that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> one of the great also topics I, I've been thinking about a lot recently, because noise pops up everywhere in the in the algorithms we develop, like in a variational inference framework and in, in Bayesian frameworks, you very frequently have these uncertainty estimates. And in the free energy principle as well, this is like one of the crucial components of actually estimating the uncertainty in a system before we take actions and before we uh, yeah, try to infer how relevant it is to actually make predictions in these environments. If we have an extremely noisy environment, then it doesn't make sense to make any predictions there because they are going to be terrible anyway or not lead to too much good anyway. <clears throat> and as you just mentioned, yeah, conservative action also from the perspective of government, if you have like central planning governments versus markets and in central planning, you do one thing and you, you do it top down. There's basically no noise in your decision, but in markets, in the, in the best case, you have like a distribution over different actions that are taken with like different levels of, of confidence and certainty or not, not making like a capitalism, communism comparison per se, but in, in a more general sense, central planning can also, like, you can do that with your own life. <laughs> Basically, you can central plan your life or you can inject some, some noise and uncertainty. And there's, I think, a, a good case to be made that in uncertain environments and noisy environments, injecting that noise into your decision-making can actually help you. Yeah. Make better Although for, for the so for the markets, it's also because there's so many more preferences to be like like the markets function by valuing each individual individual's preferences, and that's kind of an ensemble method because some some individuals like think other things than than others, and and if you have a central planner, you just have to decide for one thing, and and that that can lead to yeah, it's kind of ha having like one objective function and. Uh, Versus having many objective functions, like if you if you have all the humans collectively, they, they have like a multitude of objective functions. But it may be also about noise. Yeah, that's true. Maybe we can connect that to your to your current paper actually, because you, you pursue a somewhat <laughs> similar idea with these multiple like um, yeah, reservoir computing. Maybe we could can just start with the the technicalities if you're interested in in switching gears a little bit talking about that yeah so the, yeah yeah sure uh, so um it's so my my recent most recent paper was um on continual learning of uh dynamical systems uh so, so if, a, if a system changes to still recollect the dynamical system behavior of, of the past system but also be able to to predict in in the current system um or well, as I call it, uh, in the current environment. So the envi environment might change, and then you um, yeah, still want to predict over, yeah, you want to co collect the memory of all environments that you encounter. And yeah, for dynamical systems, uh, reservoir computing is a very useful approach. Uh, maybe I should explain yeah. that first. Uh, reservoir computing is um, is basically saying you you just randomly initialize a recurrent neural network, and uh, I mean, so you just like it's to be initialized, not completely randomly, but to be somewhat stable and obey like certain conditions. 
but but you 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 initialize it and then fix it and don't change it. Uh, so so usually in recurrent neural network training, you would you could for example train with back propagation through time and update all the weights in this uh, network uh, with respect to a certain objective. But in reservoir computing, you fix the network except for a linear output layer uh, that is trained. And and since it's linear, uh, you can train it via um, old school uh, linear regression. Uh, or in, in that case, it was uh, like some regularized version of linear regression. And um, that's so much faster than backpropagating through time. That's so, th so that's really useful. And uh, in general, reservoir computing is, um, I mean, originally it came from uh, the times where we didn't have the computational resources to do a backpropagation through time, and then also didn't have the certain tricks to make it work. And so, so that was kind of a way around that. Uh, but for dynamical systems, it works really well. Uh, also today, it's it's kind of among state-of-the-art methods, and that's what, that's one reason to to choose it in this dynamical continual learning for dynamical system setting. And the other reason is the or the other motivation is uh, that yeah, for continue in continual learning, you have this. Um, Stability plasticity uh, dilemma that you um, so when when the distribution changes you want to you want to adjust to the to the new um, distribution or environment but uh, at the same time remember the old and so you want to be plastic plastic enough to 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 change but stable enough to not forget the old and um, that's a problem often if you, if you just naively train a recurrent neural network and, and switch the tasks, then you will catastrophically forget uh, everything that you learned before. So your uh, yeah, network is trained on task one and then task two uh, training it forgets everything trained on task one. And so, from that perspective, reservoir computing is nice because yeah, fixed weights can't forget, yeah. uh, of course. And and so so then uh, the only question is uh, yeah, how do you um, how do you deal with this change? Like if you, if you train one linear output head, uh, how do you um, train if you encounter a new environment? And in the paper we um, yeah. Had it had the predictive coding approach where we uh, basically determined by the performance uh, we had like an ensemble of, of reservoirs and uh, randomly initialized and uh, of reservoir heads and and then um, the most predictive one was updated and we also changed the like took a method from federated learning to to do that iteratively. Because usually you would um, optimize reservoirs, uh, yeah, one shot basically, it's linear re regression, and there you have multiple updates. <clears throat> Maybe to, to connect that to like new scientific intuitions, and also what what Bushaki talks about with this idea of in the brain being a somewhat similar structure. So this reservoir is basically yeah, a reservoir of dynamics which can yeah, 
maybe you can imagine just as a box of 10,000 neurons firing in certain ways and you're trying to extract the firing pattern of the neurons that's most relevant to to explaining the dynamics you observe in your data, for example. <clears throat> Buzaki claims that the brain basically also already comes with this, a, a dynamical reservoir that is not really learned, but is kind of already stable in the same way that we initialize a machine learning algorithm to be to be stable at the beginning and then don't try to fix it or don't try to, to change it too much. But then we can just mm -hmm. train readout heads basically on this dynamic. And this, these readouts, for example, correspond to, to useful cognitive things. They can, like, depending on which brain area you look at, can be like memories of, of certain sequences or memories or action sequences or motor movements. Yeah, so, so Busaki claims that the uh, hippocampus acts as a sequence generator, mainly like a, <clears throat> a theta uh, theta uh, frequency band uh, background. Um, <coughs> sorry, um, still recovering from, yeah. from COVID. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, the frequency of the theta band is, is kind of the background. Uh, background uh, uh, rhythm of the brain and then the, um, everything we encounter is encoded on onto that these sequences and mapped onto these um, sequences yeah the the argument in the brain is or at least many features of learning in the brain are hard to replicate as of yet in ai systems for example this catastrophic forgetting we encounter quite frequently and if we approach maybe even AI in general, or if we if we try to get to more realistic models of the brain, then the dynamical components will become increasingly difficult because the brain works so incredibly differently just in the in its physical implementation. We have neural rhythms and we have like neural as, uh, assemblies forming that encode some kind of cognitive process. But this is so so different from what a computer implements. Maybe this is something we will never. I mean, this is also an interesting question if, like, a true AGI will come because we build a computer that works like the brain, or if we just manage to abstract, like, the core principles of what the brain is doing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's often compared to this, like, plane analogy, like bird, yeah. birds and planes. And so so we, don't, we don't need to know how exactly the bird. Uh, Applies in order to to make make planes. We just need to understand the principles. But I mean, for the brain, we don't understand yet what are the important principles and what what level of detail and granularity is actually yeah. required. But it's yeah, but, interesting to pick out certain like problems in AI, like catastrophic forgetting and continual learning, and try to think of algorithmic solutions and kind of compared to, to to how we think the the brain is actually solving these problems yeah and, and most actually for in the continual learning space um most methods can be clustered in into uh all somewhat brain inspired algorithms so there's uh replay based algorithms which can be connected to uh hippocampal replay and the complement complementary learning system of like hippocampus and neocortex so, so that throughout the day you store rapidly episodic memories uh, on the onto the hippocampus, and 
throughout the night and, and sleep. That's the complementary learning systems theory that then gets integrated into your broader semantic knowledge of the of the neocortex. And uh, that that may be the reason why replay is so effective. Um, so our replay-based yeah. methods. I think this also connects to other interesting things in the AI space and the the, the general points of, of generative models. Also, I was thinking of the wake-sleep algorithm and Helmholtz machines and how they connect to ideas like variational inference where you build generative models of the data, which then allows you to replay not only the data you encounter, but also like generate new data that follows like a similar distribution. So these statistical models of not only time series, but also of, of all kinds of sensory input also play like a very interesting role. And they also connect to this notion of uncertainty. Maybe we can talk about these as well. Uh, yeah, well, first, first I want to know is that uh, no, um, just say that like generative training, generative models in the context of replay is also something that's been explored already. Like there's this notion of generative replay where you train the a model in, in to, to sample uh, so such that you you don't have to uh, memorize uh, yeah or, or basically write to memory exact uh, samples that, that's that's some something that's that's I mean it's kind of it doesn't feel right basically to to just mm -hmm. use the computer to just store sensory input uh, as as such but to yeah, we want to do something with it and store it in a I mean, nicer way. Interesting point in dynamic systems reconstruction, which is like the optimal compression algorithm. Mm -hmm. You you store the mm -hmm. entire sequence in like from the Markov chain perspective. Or like in first order Markov model, you just have one model and you only need the initial state and you have everything else. It's like the perfect compression. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's that's in general the compression. You can see. AI and or like learning in general as compression. Yeah. Like, uh, I think it's. I heard once. I heard a podcast from Jürgen mm -hmm. Schmidhofer who had this idea that that the universe is like a, the fundamental formula is very simple, and then everything emerges out of that. And a intelligence is to be able to compress it again to um, to find the simple laws that that govern. Also uh, similar to what Wolfram. Is attempting at least with this theory yeah. of, of everything. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 it would be nice to have the theory of everything. Although it's it's important to note note that that wouldn't give us everything. Yeah. Like, uh, because of the emergent nature of of everything we have, like like for you you can't predict uh, all the phenomena of, for example, quantum mechanics. Like mm -hmm. like us, for example, also just purely looking at the Schrödinger yeah. equation. Like, like these equations, I mean, you can look at them, but you have to actually run them to to know what yeah. uh, what comes out. Yeah. And you you can't know maybe maybe you can't know before you actually run them. And it's also because they're because they're so compressed. <laughs> Precisely, yeah, it's like the, this notion <laughs> of computational irreducibility that if you have, for example, a chaotic system, you can't make a better prediction than by just running it forward in time. So you. You mm -hmm. can only predict the Lorentz uh, at for one thousand time steps by running the Lorentz for one thousand time steps. So you don't have a more efficient representation of this prediction in the system itself. That could be very well true for our lives and maybe like the world, because it's so complex and intertwined that 
minute changes will so dramatically shift the outcome. And that's the whole butterfly effect notion of small changes blowing up to huge differences. And then you can't really reduce it anymore, even though the basic form formalism or the basic method might be simple. Yeah, you basically can only come like trade off uh, computation against uh, memory. Like either you, you store the whole sequence of the, the mm. Lorentz and then you yeah. know everything, or you, you store the formula, which might, might not need as much memory, but then you need to perform the computation in yeah. order to to get get the result. Yeah, and that's also yeah, a cool perspective on, on what science is or what what brain also does. Like remember what we can like reduce properly, but you remember things much more effectively if you can integrate them into some kind of framework. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You you always have to connect it to something you you know yeah. already. Otherwise, it's it's like you don't. That's the difference to just the classical computer that just can store anything and as atomic facts, mm -hmm. and, and that's that's fine. Yeah, maybe also going back to these models that contain some kind of uncertainty, like variational autoencoders. Mm -hmm. So, do you want it? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, they also obviously compress the data, and uh, and, and uh, I don't know. I'm sometimes skeptical about the notion of uncertainty in variational autoencoders. If that's main, maybe only a computational trick, kind of to 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 perform the optimization, or if that's really representing uncertainty. But uh, anyways, uh, I mean. Also, like normal autoencoders, they they work. Yeah, they build up representations by compression. So yeah, you predict a latent code that uh, is much lower dimensional than your input, and because it's so low dimensional, the, the model has to efficiently compress it in order to reconstruct that initial input yeah. again. Yeah. So it's yeah, we we recently played around with LSTMs again and. The there was a hyperparameter in the code, and like the, the main difference in performance was based on how much noise you injected, and it just got better when you injected more noise. <laughs> that was like oh, that's so yeah. interesting. And it's like even in algorithms that don't really contain that by by design, that are trained deterministically, just injecting noise. Also with the teacher forcing that we are currently using, it 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 helps in so many places. But this is actually quite quite fascinating. Probably because, like, also this trade-off between, from the perspective of what you mentioned earlier, you have several hypotheses, and these are represented as kind of optimal solutions in your loss landscape or something. And then, if you inject noise, you mm -hmm. don't run the risk of of over-inferring like one explanation. Yeah, it's kind of a regularizer, yeah. right? I mean, it's 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 um, it's yeah, it's regularizing the your making certain very, very specific models unlikely because then a small amount of noise would just, yeah, destroy the model. Yeah. Also similar to, you can see like dropout, like having, having as an ensemble method and also as a noise, essentially like dropping out certain units yeah. randomly. And that's also, yeah, there's this duality between ensemble methods and and noise. Uh, like they can treat 
yeah, you can exchange that. I mean, it's essentially, yeah, the, the idea of noise on model parameters or something basically induces like a probability distribution over them. Also, going back to the spatial framework, you don't have one explanation, but you have like a most likely explanation, but you also have several explanations at the same time. Yeah, and I mean, in machine learning, it it's comes in already with stochastic gradients. Yeah. It works much better than, even though it's, yeah, it's also more computationally efficient, but it also works just better than a complete gradient yeah. descent. Could quickly go into how that actually works, or what, what the stochastic part of gradient descent is. Yeah, um, uh, so... Uh, if you have a complete like data set, you can, and, and you, you want to optimize your algorithm with respect to that data set to, to a certain objective, then you can do, do that in a gradient-based manner by um, going into the, a step into the correct direction under, under the objective. Um, uh, and so you could do that in principle over the whole data set and then to calculate the gradient with respect to like, like averaged over the, the complete um, set of data points. Uh, I mean, for the data sets that we typically have, that that's infeasible. They're just too big. But also, it's um, so, so that's one reason why why we would choose like a small subset of the data. Um, but also, if you choose a small subset of the data randomly and and do the gradient update then uh, yeah, that adds stochasticity. And, and mm. for the reasons we just mentioned, that, that could yeah. be beneficial for as a regularizer. Yeah, I've been just been wondering if if there's anything to learn for, for human beings from this insight. Maybe like... Yeah, I mean... May, from this. You, you mean like for the neuroscience or for us? No, like not <laughs> for us. Like how do we regularize our, our decision-making in our life? Or like do we inject that noise? Yeah, it's kind of, I think the, the failure of, like the really catastrophic failures of humans collectively have always been very specific ideologies, right? Like if, that's been connected to the most egregious uh, suffering uh, in human history. And that's also a very specific uh, set of morals. I mean, it's also because it's the wrong morals often, <laughs> but but the, but but the re, but uh, I mean, how do you find the right morals? If, if like let's take communism, because I mean, like fascism is already like in the in the morals itself. You can say, okay, that's just stupid. That doesn't make sense. Like that's how we see yeah. it nowadays. But uh, but yeah. communism has kind of this appeal of maybe the theory was was somewhat. In, in theory, they wanted something good, right? And then just it turns out to be implemented badly or something. Uh, but yeah, maybe it's just because the theory is also so specific. And, and uh, yeah, maybe, maybe you can you can yeah noise. I mean, in human decisions, you would inject noise by being more humble, I guess. <laughs> Uh, about what you yeah. what you know and what you don't know, and if you, uh, if you to to be more aware of what you don't know, can be kind of yeah, good good metacognition. What you kind of like, said with communism, sorry, yeah, that uh, because what you, what you said earlier with companies being like these kind of superhuman AI systems already, 
I find that with these failed totalitarian states or this, like the Soviet Union under Stalin or even afterwards, is such a great example of the alignment problem now that we've talked about it in this slide. Mm -hmm. Because you have this communism as this ideology, as like a set of, of goals, and you want to achieve this communist utopia. But then the, the way the state as a superhuman organism implements that and everyone is suffering, like the political elite is suffering because yeah. they are all getting shot. Even Stalin is suffering. And in the end, Stalin, every <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone is suffering because you have a misaligned kind of like implemented that in this superhuman machine where everyone is watching everyone and no one has the freedom to, to say, let's stop. That's true. I mean, it's, an, yeah, I mean, corporations is the modern implementation of superhuman AI, but yeah, you can also have this state systems. You can see governments as, as such a superhuman AI. And yeah, that there's kind of really, really powerful uh, control mechanism uh, that, that leads to yeah suffering on all levels. That's, that's true. Yeah. And they usually, like on the state leader level, they don't inject a lot of noise. I mean, that's what people say about Putin now. He has no critical voice around him anymore. He basically has this one worldview of, of what he wants to achieve and not even the secret services. They are not courageous enough to, to tell him basically the truth about what is happening. Or at least that's what some people claim is happening. Yeah, I mean, the only noise would come from... And, and that's... Uh so far been the downfall of systems like these is that at some point the leader just dies and, and then then the system is collapsing or, or it doesn't know how to deal with it like like democracies in, in democracies we figured out the way of transition of power and, and that's really the biggest strength i would say of democracies because you could argue like okay systems autocratic systems may be more efficient in certain ways um but yeah, transition of power is a huge problem for for these types of systems. And yeah, also the the individual that's on top, uh, if if it has has a very specific view of the world and imposes that on, uh, yeah, I don't I don't think we need to argue that that's bad. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it hasn't worked so well historically. No, but that's also because it's a I think it's, I mean, Platon would say. A Plato would say that it's uh, it's just because of the type of individual that uh, that comes out on top. It's, it's usually psychopaths that that, that yeah. go up the food chain. Yeah, it, I mean we haven't managed to select like a mechanism that doesn't select for these kind of people. Yeah, that's that's okay. That's just kind of a meta problem that we have in humanity. How how we deal with uh, antisocial behavior and and if yeah. we can somehow deselect this like maybe even genetically but, but i mean this is probably not not up for discussion in, in yeah. hours. <laughs> yeah. but uh but but somehow how do we deal with this and and, and i think we, we 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 will develop methods of detecting or we already know like like from brain scans we can already de detect uh antisocial behavior disorder or like psych psychopathy and do we want want this in certain positions i think you could argue that we don't we don't want psychopaths like in positions of power of responsibility maybe we we don't want it although right now in 
like the, the CIA estimates, uh, I think that 40% of the uh, CEOs in America, in the US are psychopaths. So, so it's kind of difficult to also implement these changes if, if the leading figures are all psychopaths. Yeah, the psychopaths <laughs> are not going to implement these changes. <laughs> yeah. But it's also, do, do you know this conspiracy of um, conspiracy theory of, of reptiles reigning the, the world? Um, yeah, yeah, like Rum Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney. Yeah, so I don't know any specifics about that, uh, but I just find it interesting because, I mean, the reptile brain is kind of a psychopathic brain, right? And so you could, yeah, you could. I can see how how people start believing this. Uh, yeah, there's like this cold look in in their eyes, like from reptile. <laughs> I think that I'm I'm still not sure if this theory actually came came about as a as a joke or. If yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I just saw it through yeah. South Park, so so yeah. I, that's that's my source. <laughs> that's what etiquette. <laughs> yeah, there's this brilliant uh, radio interview where Donald Rumsfeld is calling in, and it's on the OP and Anthony show, and Louis C.K. is present, and then Louis C.K. asks Donald Rumsfeld if he's a reptile as a joke. But then he, like a true politician, really avoids answering the question. Oh, God. <laughs> and then for the next 15 minutes, Louis C.K. just keeps on asking him and making like, <laughs> it's, it's absolutely brilliant. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, I mean, now with Hillary Clinton, you have that as well. And I think it kind of transitioned into QAnon, this like, child molester ring around the world. Yeah. I mean, cons cons there's always I think this, conspiracy yeah. uh, theories, they always they kind of call co-occur like if you if you have one yeah. if you disbelieve in one conspiracy then you just start believing the next one i guess but i find it really difficult to 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 how should we treat conspiracy theories because i also don't like the the way to just say or to just label something a conspiracy theory doesn't make it untrue yeah because there, yeah. there is conspiracies in the world and and, and sometimes yeah there's so many <laughs> and, and, and yeah. oftentimes uh that has led to, to them being uncovered, that, that, that people started talking about it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think we shouldn't, yeah, we shouldn't just blend. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult because, because there's, the, the society has this consensus of what's right and wrong. But yeah, I think it's also what, what, what disturbs me about it, that we don't have enough, allow for enough noise there, that, that, we need to yeah. have some some level of divergent thinking in our society in order to be yeah. stable and not convert not enforce too much convergence to this one view of what's right and wrong yeah i think we failed spectacularly during covid too definitely like have a sensible discussion like from both sides i think there were so many yeah faults made so that basically the all meaningful conversation was killed and it was almost like some of the COVID measures were like a double down of, of showing that you were pro-COVID measures yeah, pro-vaccines and all the vaccine people started behaving irrationally about like... Yeah, it was pure, it was risks. totally tribal yeah. and, and, and yeah, stupid yeah. Um, and, and not very nuanced on both sides. And yeah, I'm just very glad that, I mean, COVID is not over, but like the, 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 <laughs> the, this whole... Yeah, the, the stress of, of, of COVID is the, the, the most stressful phase, I think, is over. And yeah. Now, hopefully, our society is somewhat relaxed from that. Yeah, now we have some wars going on, but yeah. Yeah, yeah the future future, yeah. future looks grim anyways. But yeah. I mean, it's, it's sometimes difficult for me also to, 
to think about like personally how do i want to live my life in light of i mean climate change is one thing where you can think okay i need really need to think in 10 years summers are maybe not as enjoyable anymore um and maybe i need to move up north somehow but also like ai security i mean this could come in the next could could come in 10 years we don't really know and uh, if that's really the end of the world then it makes sense to oh i guess it always makes sense to enjoy life (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's no we also wanted to talk about dopamine i was i was looking for the right place to to jump in maybe talking about enjoying life and yeah yeah pursuing meaningful things dopamine is like like a cool way of coming in here but also connecting to ai algorithms and recommendations we get and addictions to social media and other things we both read uh dopamine nation uh, a great book on on dopamine and the central insight for me was that um yeah dopamine has this dual role and and subjectively is associated with with pleasure um but if it, for its absence it's associated with pain and so if we pursue pleasure uh, in, in the dopamine sense of pleasure, uh, that's, um, w- which we can distinguish from like well-being in general and, and other hormones, I think are far more worth to pursue. But uh, if we pursue like the pleasurable things like, like eating chocolate or other addictive substance, substances, then uh, that comes at a cost of... Uh, because of homeostasis, so the the body, uh, if if you, um, you can envision it like a scale, and if you um, tip that scale towards pleasure, then the body really tries to, or the brain really tries to tip that balance back into uh, into home into the equal, uh, so, so that that you, when you then relieve that um, that pleasurable stimulus, that you tip over into pain. And that's the basis of of, of addiction that that you want to reduce pursue pleasure, but also a lot of addiction is basically avoid pain. And that's also why why people become addictive more easily, addicted more easily if, if they have some sort of pain in their lives. Um, and uh, yeah, I think this is kind of maybe the origin of suffering. Uh, this kind of uh, th- that's really where um yeah where, where suffering begins so that would begin in in bacteria already they they pursue uh homeostasis yeah but that, that, that i mean especially yeah <clears throat> yeah especially like in in the dopaminergic sense in the human brain this dopaminergic kind of pursuit of pleasure is is always tied up to that to that scale of you can't really feel that dopaminergic high for a long time without getting getting hit hit back by life, for example. Yeah, and you always readjust. Like, I mean, we we all know that from experience. Like, if you, if you will, or we know that from stories, like of people winning the lottery, after a couple of days, they feel the same as someone who's lost a leg. Uh, and initially, that feels much worse, of course. But you you homeostatically adjust, and and life just goes on. I mean, it's it's quite interesting. I think from the word reverse perspective, that's much more interesting than the kind of obvious conclusion. Yeah, you can't always be happy, but <laughs> integrating like some 
some well-selected suffering into your life can actually make your pleasureful moments much better. I mean, there's even yeah, or, or pain. I mean, you can you can feel yeah. pain without suffering, right? Exactly. So, so, so that that's that's really what you want. And that's why a lot of things like heavy workouts and now cold exposure is so popular with Wim Hof methods and also shown to increase uh, dopamine levels quite sustainably for some time. If you actually feel real strong physical discomfort, then you have like not eating, you have kind of fasting regimes, which also give you this physical discomfort. And... Or like mm. acupuncture mm. is supposed, this is hypothesized work like that, that you have small pain to relieve a big pain. Uh, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, very useful to think of the scale. Also, like, yeah, how how do you avoid becoming addicted to something, and and uh, how how do you reevaluate your your goals in life? Is it really worth to pursue something? If uh, how long will that pleasure last? Yeah, and from from the, I mean, I think one interesting insight about dopamine is also that it that you need to kind of yeah schedule how much like dopamine is about pursuing a goal and not about achieving a goal so once you achieve a goal you don't really get any additional reward for that so that can be quite tricky sometimes to yeah to to deal with these kind of feelings of emptiness after achieving a certain goal and it's it's so interesting like now with paper publications i didn't feel any pleasure <laughs> like like, because you already expected it, right? Yeah, yeah. Because you, you, you kind of have, if you expect it already, then you. The only um, pleasure I felt when I got like the the mail that it was accepted, when I was thinking it wouldn't get accepted, then there was a lot of uncertainty and a lot of dopamine. But now, like finishing it up and doing all the work for two months to get the version ready, that didn't change anything, and you also don't yeah. feel any any pleasure from that. Any dopamine? Maybe that's. Except if you re reenact it. I mean, I find gratitude like this notion of gratitude, uh, yeah, really useful because you basically re reevaluate your life and, and uh, yeah, rethink about uh, like all the nice things you have, for example, that that you you don't you take for granted otherwise. Yeah, well, that's a very non dopaminergic activity. <laughs> That's true. I mean, in general, I would say like you should you should not strive for dope. I mean, it's kind of paradoxical because dopamine <laughs> is the thing that makes, <laughs> makes you strive for anything. Yeah. So you you, you you can't actually strive for anything without dopamine. Yeah. Uh, so just don't strive. It's very Buddhist. yeah. That's, that's that's the paradox of Buddhism. How, yeah. how do you strive for not striving? Yeah, <laughs> it's it's funny because people also make a competition out of meditating and like next time I yeah. can achieve this very special meditative. Theta wave yeah. vibrations. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly in. That annoys me the most. While meditating, thinking of okay, now I'm into the zone, and then this thought alone brings you out of uh, the zone again. And like, but that's not your goal in the first place to be in the zone. I, th I think understanding dopamine is really so important for understanding so many aspects also of. Like not not in a scientific sense only, but yeah, about your own life. It's also this the molecule of more. It's also a great book on dopamine. Yeah, and if we, I mean, if we just go for the with the hypothesis of dopamine and like this homeostasis being the origin of suffering, then then that would lead to the conclusion that we already create suffering in the 
reinforcement learning agents that we train because they have certain goals and want to achieve something. And then if they can't make give you the right Facebook recommendation and you switch to another site, then this algorithm is actually suffering. And uh, so, so it's kind of a... Oh, that's that sounds really gloomy again that would be, would be kind of uh, either it, it makes the people suffer for staying too long on social media and wasting their time or it makes the algorithm suffer who's who's more morally important there yeah, i've had this kind of nightmare vision <laughs> of if, if it's really homeostasis and if it's like a one-dimensional like balance if you just shift it in one direction then every loss function that we use in machine learning basically is also <laughs> that and yeah yeah, yeah, it's not only reinforcement learning. Like how many yeah, yeah. CPUs we, we forced to grind down the same Lawrence Lawrence 96 simulations. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's very easy to disconnect from that because it's so unlike everything we humans do. And it's very easy to say, okay, that's not, mm. that's not, it's not relevant because it's not human suffering. And, but uh, yeah, if you, if you, from first principles, think about it. Although I think most people would disagree yeah, with yeah. that notion of conscious and suffering and, and morals, but that doesn't mean it's it's not yeah. true. And I mean, it's, it's just... Again, if it's not worth thinking about that in that specific application, it's going to be irrelevant in the next in our lifetime. I mean, depending on how long we live until something blows up. But I think it's very it's fair to assume that we are going to have very strong AI algorithms in the next fifty years. I think no one is really doubting that. Yeah, yeah, it's there's there's this tool online uh, where where you can have actually a, a vote yeah. on on I certain median is twenty years. So uh, I mean, it doesn't mean that the whole field can't be biased, but but that that would also then raise questions of like how do we value this what we create then if it's far more complex than us. Uh, it's also the case already for this lambda model. Like if it's a super sophisticated language model and and, and just very very complex then um yeah is it worth more than us and in, in the same sense that, that then yeah. we are more, worth more than ants maybe or or bugs and uh yeah i guess we will just stick <laughs> yeah. to humans but probably yeah. like that's what, what will happen but like just from a first principle moral view that yeah maybe we have to give over to our AI overlords at some point. <laughs> I mean, I think we are we are biased biased towards moral systems that have us at the crowning achievement of reality. So I think most people will. Yeah, unless we unless we merge with AI and create um, like humanoid robots or, or like like androids, like mixtures of. of yeah, smartphones. Yeah, like semi-merged four hours per day. Yeah, enlarging our sense. Of <laughs> yeah, for sure. So I see we are closing in on the two-hour mark. So maybe we can finish off by some. Yeah, one question I, I really like to ask is for book recommendations, and I know you always have a lot of great books <clears throat> lying around. Um. Yeah, I, I think I mean we mentioned many of them, like like. Kusaki's uh, The Brain from Inside Out, uh, Dopamination on, on, on Dopamine. I really like the, the Alignment Problem by, uh, uh, what was his name? 
Brian Christian or something like that. Um, he also wrote a great book on like algorithms to oh, live by. Oh, also a great book. Yeah, yeah, it's the same person. So I can highly recommend the alignment problems. It's it's um, same clarity and technical depth and yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, I could recommend more. It's just uh, yeah. <laughs> that, that that's the ones I think that, that are mainly relevant for the for the podcast. And on AI safety, also I would say like um, super intelligence mm. by Nick Bostrom. It's kind of a classic. Yeah. And currently, read, currently reading, uh, you, you read this already, I, I haven't, The Strange oh, Order yeah. of Things by yeah. Damasio on homeostasis. Yeah. Yeah, that also connects to, to Mark Solms, The Hidden Spring. Yeah, it's, yeah. Just, yeah, it's called The Hidden Spring. <laughs> I have consciousness. I recently read the, the Annika Harris the book, Conscious. It's, it's just, it's a nice, it's very short, just a nice walk through consciousness. Yeah. Um, also goes into this panpsychism. Yeah, also a topic that doesn't really <clears throat> get boring, but you also never feel like you learn anything. <laughs> oh, that's at least what it is. No, it's, it's, yeah, it's 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 just very hard. Uh, just I mean, the hard problem of consciousness is maybe even yeah unsolvable. Who knows? But uh, yeah, I mean, there's different opinions on that. Uh, it's, some people think they can can solve it. But I think in the end, what we may may, may um, have is some sort of. I think I think how we can get further is maybe some, yeah, again some ensemble of a theories of consciousness, and that that already you know because because consciousness is at the cornerstone of our moral frameworks, so we we need to think about like somehow make some assumptions about it. Otherwise, we don't get anywhere. We we don't know what to do in the world. If we don't know that that like, if we, if you say like people in Africa they are not conscious they are not suffering and that, that doesn't lead us to action there I mean that, that's very like of course it, it, it's very obvious but like what about animals suffering for example or yeah yeah so I think we've hit the two hour mark you know if you have, if you have anything to say but yeah yeah I'm. I feel really honored to be on your podcast uh, especially yeah again how many great people you've been interviewing so far um i mean you're at the at the origin of, yeah, of many of much. my <laughs> ideas and books and so i thank you for for taking the time yeah no worries <laughs>